This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 12, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The president says he will meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and he'd be the first U.S. chief executive to visit the leader of the Hermit Kingdom. How did this meeting come together? Why wasn't the State Department involved? What should be the focus? And what happens if it goes well or goes poorly? Cato's Doug Bandow and John Glazer comment. When we think of presidents meeting with world leaders, particularly important world leaders, uh, for the first time, there's a lot that has to go into this in order to get that meeting set up. Do we know anything about the channels that were were used to establish this meeting between Trump and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un? As far as we can tell, there were no channels directly between the White House or Washington and Pyongyang. Everything so far has occurred through South Korea. All of the discussion, all of the statements about what Kim Jong-un has offered, everything has come through North Korea. So we have yet to have a clear statement from the North Koreans indicating an invitation to what they want out of this. So this is really extraordinary. You almost always have very serious preparatory work between the parties as opposed to kind of an instantaneous invitation coming through a third party between two countries that have had very little contact directly. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the most troubling things about this uh, prospective summit is that the the lower-level groundwork has not been done uh, to make it so that a head-to-head meeting uh, between heads of state, face-to-face meeting between heads of state, is, you know, it's considered safe after an agreement has essentially already been uh, uh, settled uh, with uh, lower-level contacts, track two discussions, uh, the State Department and their foreign minister and so on. And so this leads us to see this meeting as very – the administration seems extremely unprepared for it. Okay. So and when you talk about track two – you're talking about discussions that occur at several levels of diplomacy. So one would reasonably assume that Rex Tillerson had something to do with this. And as far as we can tell, he did not. He was busy in Africa when this happened. As it was happening, he was explaining how talks were going to be a long way off and everything. And as far as we can tell, the State Department had absolutely no clue what was even going on. I mean, that is extraordinary. And there's no evidence, frankly, that anyone else say, at NSC or elsewhere, again, had done preparatory work. If you look at the, you know, the famous Nixon-Mao you know, visit, I mean, that was a huge amount of work went on. Ahead of time, Henry Kissinger had a famous episode. He was in Pakistan and then supposedly had a cold, canceled his obligations and went off to Beijing. I mean, there was work that was done ahead of time so everyone knew what they were getting into, an understanding of what was going to come out of it. The meeting was a symbolic ratification of an agreement already made. You know, never do you send in your principal, and especially a principal who doesn't like to be briefed and doesn't know a lot, and expect him to do the negotiating and coming up with an agreement. So what are the preconditions set down? I'm reminded of two things. One, which is uh, Ronald Reagan meeting with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and then years later, John McCain pounding the, the table suggesting that uh, the United States shouldn't be talking to Iran without setting down these huge preconditions for uh, these kinds of for – the, for the type of meeting. So what is the meeting or looking like in terms of acceptances that both sides have had to uh, accept? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so the South Koreans have said – 
that the North Koreans have indicated that they're willing to denuclearize. Uh, and that's sort of the basis, at least at first glance, of uh, these talks uh, or this prospective summit. Uh, the problem is that the, what they don't say in that offer is what the United States has to give up, uh, what the United States has to be willing to concede in terms of giving them security guarantees, promising we won't engage in regime change, perhaps revising the U.S.-South Korean alliance, whatever it is. Um, only with a major concession from the U.S. side would North Korea really be willing to give up its nuclear program, which it has uh, sought and obtained with great uh, effort and cost and, and resources and so on. Um, that currently, that deterrent, is precisely what's protecting them from the United States in their view. Uh, and so they're not going to give it up very easily. I mean, the reason there haven't been direct negotiations with the Trump administration is because it has set forth the demand that North Korea agree to denuclearization before they sit down. And North Korea has not been willing to do so absent an agreement on what it gets in return. And the one worry is it, it appears that both sides may have very different expectations than in going into this talk where the administration seems to assume this theoretical agreement to denuclearization is a commitment. While I think on the North Korean side, it's a theoretical commitment based upon what they expect to get out of the deal. When I was in Pyongyang last June, I was uh, you know, talking to one of the officials at the foreign ministry, and I asked him, assume the U.S. gets rid of its hostile policy, as they put it, would they denuclearize? Well, he told me, well, if the U.S. and China and Russia were willing to give up their nuclear weapons, of course, they would be willing to do so. Of course, that's not going to happen. So I think the danger here, there's a practical and a theoretical distinction that the two parties might not have been thinking about. And look, this, this mismatch, mismatch between expectations is another reason that it's really worth worrisome, uh, because not only is the Trump administration not deeply prepared for the meeting, but if it fails, if they can't come to some agreement, or if Trump expects to walk in there with the cameras blazing and come to some historic agreement in a day, um, that could mean that diplomacy is seen to fail. And if diplomacy is seen to fail, the Trump administration will feel it has even more right to take a harder line approach and perhaps sort of unravel into a conflict. So, well, let's assume denuclearization is on the table with some sort of guarantee. That doesn't take away the conventional weapons, the significant conventional weapons that North Korea has amassed 40 miles from Seoul. Um, so, so what's the role of, of South Korea in these discussions? <laughs> you said that they were sort of providing a lot of the key uh, information going between uh, the White House and Pyongyang, but what is going to be their role in substantive discussions? Well, at the moment, we have no idea. And of course, it's not just South Korea, it would be China. One can imagine some kind of security guarantees that would involve the PRC, that uh, China would add its support for any agreement, the U.S. would acknowledge a security role for China, that then could add to the security for North Korea. But we have no obvious entree of them into these talks either. Again, this is why you want preparation, where you would have talks ahead of time that would bring in Japan and Russia as well. It's a regional issue. It's a question of aid. It's a question of support, economic development. There are many things that could come into a package for North Korea that involve the other countries. 
A meeting just between the United States and North Korea has not brought any of those in, but they're essential, I think, for a long-lasting, stable agreement. You know, it'd be interesting to see what role South Korea plays in the ongoing negotiations or the summit when it does happen, because they could potentially fill the gaps where the Trump administration is still unprepared. Um, and that is somewhat hopeful in terms of the stabilizing influence of uh, how things go. And, you know, some people have asked, why has North Korea come to us? Why do they make this offer now? Well, two things. First of all, North Koreans have pretty persistently made this offer to meet face-to-face. -face. Uh, but the other reason is uh, the South Koreans. They've been engaging in really steady diplomacy over the past several months. And, you know, sanctions on their own tend not to work in terms of yielding capitulation from the other side or getting them to agree to talks. What has to happen also is an off-ramp, and the Trump administration wasn't providing that. South Korea provided it for us. Uh, and so they have, uh, uh, they get a lot of credit for, for making this uh, pr prospective summit a reality. So going forward, then, we should expect or we should hope to expect, given what you, you say, this lack of preparation by the White House and the ongoing diplomacy that South Korea is engaged in, we should expect them to play a significant role uh, going forward, even though we don't know, really know what that is. Well, I would say we should hope they do. Knowing what to expect out of the administration is hard to know. You know, the, the president of South Korea is a man of the left. He's someone who a lot of the supporters of President Trump do not like. So there's a fair amount of tension with that. The other issue is that this administration is kind of bereft of people dealing with the issue. Joseph Yun, who was the you know, senior diplomat who's been involved with North Korea, recently quit uh, the State Department. We do not have a, an ambassador in Seoul to deal with South Korea. So the question, and we've seen the State Department apparently cut off you know, from at least the initial meeting or the, you know, the, the notion that there was going to be a meeting. So part of the problem is simply who in the Trump administration is even going to be handling this. We really do need to have South Korea involved because they know the issue much better. Will the Trump administration be willing to do so, however, is a different question. So broadly speaking, though, the backing out a little bit from sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how this might occur, this seems like a very uh, positive thing. The fact that these, these discussions, I mean, all thanks to the South Koreans for – uh, providing this this entree to this kind of discussion, but this seems like uh, hopefully two parties ready to deal. Yeah, it's a potentially very hopeful thing, but in life you get to choose from uh, options that are the least bad uh, and and not uh, the ideal. And so it's not ideal. I would have hoped that the Trump administration uh, engaged in more low-level talks and, and prepared uh, what our red lines are, what their red lines are, before a face-to-face uh, -face, face meeting by heads of state. I would hope that uh, the Trump administration has a steady diplomatic hand and is not prone to conflict as opposed to diplomacy. Um, I would hope that the administration's past talk about uh, war was not made so casually. And I would hope further that they are flexible on what they need to give up and what the North Koreans, what they expect out of the North Koreans. Nevertheless, this is better than where we were uh, just a week, week or two ago, where the administration or Trump and Kim are trading barbs over how stupid one another is. They're, they're uh, threatening nuclear uh, aggression, you know, the prospect of a meeting is always better than, than the kind of disastrous war that has often been on the table. I think that's absolutely right. I think the, the downside is 
if the meeting blows up, how does the Trump administration respond? And it's important to recognize the meeting might not happen. I mean, the reality here is already among neoconservatives, hawkish, uh, you know, Republicans, they're kind of horrified at the thought of the meeting. They're worried about concessions. There is going to be a lot of pressure put on the president. I think this may be one of those moments where his kind of desire for self-aggrandizement in theater might <laughs> be a positive. That is, he may see this as that dramatic moment where he can play an important role and therefore face down his critics, while another president might be, might be more prone to go along with them, he may very well be willing to stand against them. And I do think, as John said, it's critically important. We've stepped away from the two leaders threatening each other and talking about war and armadas. That's very helpful. The critical thing now is let's hope this does not blow up, but find a way to make it, at the very least, the start of a serious negotiation over time to work through the details. That if they're able to come to at least a broad sense they can work together, to me, that offers the opportunity of the sustained diplomatic effort and regional support that's necessary that could bring us to a successful and peaceful agreement. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and John Glazer directs Cato's foreign policy studies. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 